0: you are of course watching the jacobin show i'm your host jen pan welcome back good to see you thanks for tuning in For today's show, uh, I will be talking to Ted Bettner. He is a researcher with the Ohio River Valley Institute, which is a think tank of sorts in West Virginia. Ted, of course, also is a West Virginian. And the reason why I wanted to bring him on today is really to look at this question of whether the left needs West Virginia. So uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, West Virginia, you know, let me put it this way. Could the left win a national election without literally winning the state of West Virginia? Yes, theoretically, I think that that is possible. However, I also think that West Virginia is a really interesting state and a really interesting case study for the left because West Virginia, of course, is very poor and working class. It was hit really hard by deindustrialization and the opioid epidemic. Uh, It's very rural. And of course, West Virginia is very white. I think it's something like over 93% white. So all of that together, I think, is a very interesting constituency. And I would argue that the left can't really win without this constituency or has to win at least a significant part of this constituency. So we will be talking to Ted Bettner a little later about all of that. And also on the show later, I will be myself talking about a new Gallup report that has come out. Um, This Gallup report basically shows that there are more self identified Republicans than there are self identified Democrats in the US right now. And it's really interesting. So I'm going to dive into that. The report uh, also covers, uh, well, the report doesn't really cover, but the report kind of points to the rise of. Self-identified independence, and I think that's really interesting as well. So I'm going to be diving into that. And last but not least, uh, we are going to have our friend Matt Brunig on in just a moment to talk about the Nordic baby boom. I don't know if you guys saw uh, there was an article that came out at the end of the year about how birth rates in birth rates across the world have basically been in decline and have been declining. Specifically over the course of the pandemic, I think the big one that was in the news this week was China. I believe their birth rate plunged something like 15% during the pandemic. The the birth rate in the US is also down. It's been going down during the pandemic. And it seems like a rare exception to this trend in the world is the the Nordic countries. So Matt, of course, is our unofficial Nordic state and welfare state correspondent. You know him as the founder and president of the People's Policy Project. Matt, good to see you.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So you probably saw, um, or you're you're probably familiar with the fact that over the course of the pandemic, most, most countries or a number of countries around the world saw birth rates fall. I was saying earlier, China's birth rate, birth rate fell something like 15%. The birth rate in the U.S. is down as well. I think the same goes for France. Uh, but there was an interesting article in the National Geographic that came out at the end of last year that showed that the Nordic countries actually experienced the opposite. They're having a baby boom. So I want to quickly read just a line from the article um, and then get your thoughts on it. So the author writes... Uh, let's see. Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland have all maintained their birth rates, and some are puzzled to find themselves in the midst of a pandemic baby boom. After a staggering—or I'm sorry, yeah—after a staggering 16.5 percent more births than normal in the second quarter of 2021, Iceland has struggled to increase capacity in its maternity wards. Finland has seen a seven percent leap in births, and Denmark and Norway have experienced three and five percent bumps, respectively. Sweden boasts a very modest 1% increase. All right, so Matt, quite honestly, I debated whether we should even bring you onto the show to talk about this because it's almost too easy of a setup, um, but I do think that there are some interesting threads to pull apart here. So um, what, what's going on? What, why, what could possibly account for this weird fact that the Nordic states experienced a baby boom during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, you know, it's kind of weird. Yeah, they're not totally immune from uh economic uh, effects driving birth rates, you know. During the great recession, they they all saw some plunges. Uh Finland especially, they had a double dip recession. So, it's not as if they're like fully immune to that kind of stuff. Uh so you would think, oh, well, here's another one. And so that's, you know, it's kind of curious, well, what happened here? Why did they zig where everyone else zagged and and where they used to zag? Uh and I guess the difference is It seems like, uh, at least relative to their prior experiences, is with the pandemic, people have some confidence that things are going to turn around and and pick back up and they're not too worried, I guess, about you know the state of their life going forward. Whereas when you have a normal recession and you're unemployed and you're thinking like how am I going to get a new job and you know is this a permanent hit to my career? Maybe it's a little bit more distressing. Um, But in a pandemic situation you're like, oh no, once this you know washes over, I'll just go back to my old job. Um, And then you know relative to other countries, I so not just relative to their own prior experience. Of course, you know, they have the most generous benefits. And, you know, there are some interviews people have done obviously with with some people doing this and they're saying well like look I'm uh, I'm out of work right now I'm I might as well have them now <laughs> you know and and I uh, get benefits if I do it I don't have to worry about that and so if anything it'll be it'll be good for my financial situation to go ahead uh, and do this right now uh, both because I get the benefits and also because I don't really sacrifice any work time cuz I was already going to be off of work you know for the pandemic so
0: So talk a little bit about the the famed Nordic benefits more broadly. Um, You've obviously come on the show in the past and have touched on this very issue. uh, But what exactly do people in the Nordic countries expect to enjoy when they have a child?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think you can think about uh, a couple of functions, right? The first uh, function is, you know, who watches the kids during the day and who's going to pay for that? So you have uh, paid leave uh, for the first uh, year, typically, um, a little bit more in some of the countries, but, you know, you get a good 52 weeks of maternity and paternity leave, and that, that covers that. Then after that, you get heavily subsidized, childcare, free for most, um, a small, small, small copay, uh, capped at a very low level for people with high incomes and most of the countries. Um, if you don't want to use child care for ages uh, one and two in Finland and Norway and in some municipalities in Denmark, they'll just pay you to do, you know, you, if you want to do your own child care, then fine, we'll just pay you as if you're a child care worker. Why not? Um, after that, obviously, you get K-12 school, which we have uh, here as well. Uh, And then you also get free college, you know, which uh, I don't know if we think of that as a child benefit, but, you know, the expectation in the U.S. for a lot of people is that the parents are going to cover that. So it kind of functions that way if we think about it in the U.S. context. So that sort of covers, you know, the kids during the day, uh, education, childcare, that kind of thing. On top of that, you get a monthly check uh, in the mail, uh, cover incidentals, food, clothing, that kind of thing. Um, You get a a baby box or a baby bonus. You know, right when they're born, a big, big chunk of money. Or in Finland, they actually just send you a box of stuff. Um, to kind of take care of the initial stuff you might need cribs uh, b- bibs uh, stuff like that, um, and they get free health care. The kids get free health care um, and th- th- the health care for the kids is more generous than the adults, of course, we know they they all have a national health insurance, uh, but you know there 's some copays and stuff like that for adults that usually aren 't uh, uh, for children the children don 't have copays uh, for dental either uh, in some of the in some of the countries, so a much more generous, free health care package for them child care check every 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 month uh i guess that that's kind of the the overall yeah. gist of it
0: I want to pause on the, the monthly cash benefit for a minute, because obviously here in the U.S., the child tax credit uh, ended last month. Um, and I, I actually saw a report today, I think from Columbia, that pointed out that as a result of the expiration of the child tax credit, child poverty in the U.S. could uh, rise from, you know, around 12 percent to over 17 so, percent. Um, so, so let's talk about the cash benefit, because you had written a piece a couple weeks ago about how uh, one of Joe Manchin's objections to the child tax credit was that parents might spend the money uh, on drugs or just, you know, otherwise not in ways, not for their children. Um, Take us through that piece. What actually happens when parents get cash benefits?
1: Well, you know, and in terms of the empirical research, uh, Canada is the easiest one to look to because they recently created the Canada Child Benefit. Um, and what they were able to show with alcohol and tobacco, not uh, illicit drugs because those are hard to track, but you know, alcohol and tobacco is probably a good uh, proxy for that. Uh, that alcohol and tobacco use actually declines um, when people uh, get child benefits, which is not, uh, you know, which is, which is consistent with the idea that it, at least some Part of alcohol and tobacco consumption is people coping with difficult situations. You make their situations less difficult, and maybe they consume less of it but that 's definitely what they what they found in those consumption surveys um, was that even beyond that and I mean, I make this point in the piece it 's not like uh, it 's not like cutting cash away from all kids and all poor kids, that doesn't really address the problem. You know? like, right. There are definitely are right. parents out there who have drug problems, who have addiction problems, have gambling problems, who have all sorts of problems. And that's not related to whether they receive child benefits. You know. Like, uh, people can be fully employed and be full-blown alcoholic. I've seen it <laughs> myself. So it's, it's, you know, it's just a different kind of problem that you have where you have some parents who may be unfit, maybe need, need some help, and maybe in extreme cases may need to be separated uh, from kids. Um, and the connection to that to should they receive income is just very, very tenuous and confusing. Like, right. well, I, it's a, a, if they're alcoholic, they just shouldn't have money. And it's like, well, how does that help the kid? The kid's right. still, now I got an alcoholic parent who doesn't have any money. It's like way worse.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, All right, so I will let you go in a second, but I wanted to actually just circle back to the first question about the Nordic baby boom. Um, You know, I I wanted to bring it up, obviously, as an excuse to to talk about some of these issues and also as kind of like a human interest story. But I guess the last question for you is, should we care that the birth rate is down in the US? I mean, I know that a lot of people sort of think of uh, a fixation on the birth rate as kind of like a right wing preoccupation. But is there a left case for caring about the birth rate?
1: Uh, you know, it's it's always like it depends on the on how extreme it gets. I guess you know, for me, when I when I propose child benefits, I'm not really thinking about how many people have kids. It's I don't really care that much about that. It's just if you have kids, you, you know, and and all kids as persons, individuals, like, should be taken care of. Um, so if people don't have more or even if they have less, like, that's fine. That's not, a, that's not a huge deal, and it doesn't undercut the case for the benefits, which is not all about right. promoting fertility. Right. You know, there is a problem in the long run if your fertility gets too low because your population becomes unbalanced, right? We, um, if a large percentage of your population is, is elderly, uh, then it's it's a very uh, big uh, burden in a sense because you know they're uh, less able to work. Uh, the percentage of the population that's much more that's that's disabled goes up, right? Because that's concentrated among older people, and so you got to provide more care and that kind of thing. And that's you know not not you know you don't want to go too far with talking about it in precisely right. that way, but. People who are old and and disabled need workers to care for them, and they come from subsequent generations. So if you don't produce enough, you can get into a a bind.
0: All right. Again, Matt Brunig, uh, founder and president of the People's Policy Project. Matt, thanks so much. Hopefully we'll see you again in the future. Thank you. Um, All right. So what I wanted to talk about today, which I sort of teased before, um, is a new report from Gallup. And actually, this continues the theme of last week's show when we had Amber and Danny on to talk about why the Democrats are such losers. There's more. So according to a new report from Gallup, there are now more self-identified Republicans than self-identified Democrats in the U.S., This is a little unusual for two reasons. The first reason is that ever since Gallup began tracking party identification three decades ago, in all but a handful of years, significantly more Americans have identified as Democrats or independents who lean Democrat than as Republicans or independents who lean Republican. The current Republican advantage is also unusual because just a year ago at the start of 2021, Democrats actually held a nine percentage point advantage over Republicans in terms of voters party identification. Unfortunately, that sharply reversed over the course of last year. In the fourth quarter of 2021, a surprising 47 percent of Gallup respondents said they identified as Republican or Republican leaning, compared to only 42 percent that said they identified as Democrats or Democratic leaning. As Gallup noted, Republicans haven't had an advantage this large since early 1995 after winning control of the House of Representatives for the first time since the 1950s, Republicans had a larger advantage only in the first quarter of 1991 after the U.S. victory in the Persian Gulf War led by then President George H.W. Bush. So to put it bluntly, over the course of Joe Biden's first year in office, the Democratic Party bled support. Why did this happen? A lot of it, of course, is due to the fecklessness, either real or perceived, of the current president As Gallup notes, changes in party identification generally track presidential approval ratings, and over the course of last year, Biden's ratings plummeted. But let's not let the rest of the Democratic Party off the hook for this drop in party support. As Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders put it recently on Seth Meyers, there's a reason why working class voters in particular have been abandoning the Democratic Party.
2: See, I happen to believe that the Republican success in these red states among working people It's not anything that they have done per se. It's not that in red states, people believe in tax breaks for billionaires or throwing millions of people off of health insurance or that people in red states want to do as Mitch McConnell does, cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I think the reason those states have gone red is that people are looking at the Democratic Party and saying, we don't believe you. We don't trust you. You're really not fighting for us. And then the reasons why... They, they go toward the Republicans. So when I go to those states and I say, you know what? You're entitled to decent wages and decent benefits, that health care is a human right, that your kids have a right to go to college, that you shouldn't be ripped off by the pharmaceutical industry. People nod their heads and they hesitate, say, yeah, you're right, Bernie. No different in those states than in any you know, Vermont or any other state.
0: So I, of course, agree with Senator Sanders. And I would also add, when he talks about Democrats losing working class support, he's really talking about long-term trends. But even in the past year alone, Democrats have proven themselves unable or unwilling to fight meaningfully for working people. You might recall that Democrats began the year by pledging to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, only to quickly jettison that promise after the Senate parliamentarian, an official who holds no actual binding power over the Senate, made some noises of objection. Then, of course, Congressional Dems managed to destroy their own spending bill, first by eliminating or shaving down popular provisions, including paid family leave, extending the child tax credit, lowering prescription drug prices, free community college and student debt relief. The Congressional Progressive Caucus also quickly signed away any leverage they might have had by striking an incredibly naive deal with Joe Manchin over splitting the bipartisan infrastructure bill from Biden's spending bill, which, as we all know, spectacularly backfired. That all leads me to this. Aside from the spike in self-identified Republicans, there's another troubling part of the recent Gallup report that I think is worth focusing on. It's this trend, a steady increase in the number of self-identified independents. Though independents started to outnumber both Democrats and Republicans in the early 90s, you can see from the graph that the trend has only grown more pronounced over the last decade or so. Back in 1991, the number of Americans who identified as independent was only about three percentage points higher than the number of people who identified as Democrats. In 2021, however, independents led Democrats by a whopping 13 points in terms of party identification. So if we go back to the graph again, we can see that the number of independents really started to grow after 2008. What exactly happened in 2008? Well, Gallup doesn't say specifically, but I think we can hazard a guess. We know that 2008 was the year that the country sank into the Great Recession and millions of families lost homes in the foreclosure crisis. According to the LA Times, during the recession, nearly 9 million people lost their jobs. At least 10 million lost their homes. Within four years, 46.5 million Americans were living in poverty.
3: This is John O'Donnell. Single, he works the night shift at a Manchester, New Hampshire hospital. An Air Force veteran, a trained commercial painter, he mops floors to help make ends meet. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? This week, for the first time in his life, he applied for food stamps. I have... Uh... Three dollars and three cents in my pocket, maybe a handful of pennies on my bureau. He's behind on his rent, a diabetic. He spends more on medicine than he does on food. His dinner the day we saw him, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a cup of coffee. Savings? Nothing. Checking account? Nothing. I have absolutely nothing. Turkey? Yeah. Is that yours? No, belongs to the gal upstairs. Nothing but his pride, and even that shrinking. Initially, it was tough
2: eating the pride. You know, I mean, I'm 52. I've never been down this road.
3: John O'Donnell is just one of the record number of Americans now living off food stamps, or SNAP as it's called, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. In September, more than 31 million Americans received food stamps, up more than 2 million from the month before. That's one out of every 10 U.S. citizens. A family of four must take home less than $1,800 per month to qualify for food stamps. How bad is it now? What you see now? Oh, this is probably the worst. I've been with the state for 16 years. From New Hampshire to California, the story's the same. More and more families relying on faith-based groups and the federal government to eat. People think of hunger, they think of other countries, but it's right here in your neighborhood. In Louisiana, ravaged yet again by hurricanes this year, the number of people on food stamps jumped 234% in September compared to a year ago. In other parts of the country, the numbers are better, but still bad. Idaho, up 24%. Florida, almost 24%. Nevada, Texas, both above 20%.
4: Working class neighborhood. As for
3: John O'Donnell, he's still holding on to disfaith. Times will get better. I'm an American, and I believe in God. Like so many Americans, that's all he has left.
0: So here's why this is significant in terms of party identification. Faced with the staggering human cost of the economic crash, what did the Democrats do? They bailed out the banks. As Matt Stoller wrote in The Washington Post, Yes, Obama prevented an even greater collapse in 2009, but he also failed to prosecute the banking executives responsible for the housing crisis, then approved a foreclosure wave under the guise of helping homeowners. Though 58% of Americans were in favor of government action to halt foreclosures, Obama's administration balked and voters noticed. By election day in 2016, 75% of voters were looking for someone who could take the country back from the rich and powerful, something unlikely to be done by members of the party that let the financiers behind the 2008 financial crisis walk free. So it's not hard to see how working and middle class voters, particularly those who had supported Obama in two elections on the promise of hope and change, eventually grew disillusioned with the Democrats. Now, at the same time, I don't think that there are many people who actually believe that the Republicans, a.k.a. the Party of Big Business and Tax Cuts for the Rich, would have done things differently or extended meaningful help to working people in the aftermath of the crisis. And so after 2008, you get a significant increase in the number of people who identify as independents that is neither as Democrat nor Republican. Now, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with identifying as an independent. And in fact, if a Gallup pollster called me today asked me how I identified politically, and then told me my only choices were Republican, Democrat, or Independent, I'd probably also say I was an Independent. But this is clearly a problem under our incredibly rigid two-party system and could have long-term ramifications for political participation in the U.S. As we're staring down a likely Republican sweep in the midterms this year, I think it's worth recalling what happened after the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. That year, as some of you may remember, an unprecedented 45 percent of union households cast votes for Reagan. And the election is often thought of as the moment that white blue collar workers fled from the Democrats to the Republicans and never looked back. However, the two election cycles after Reagan's presidency actually tell a slightly different story. What appears to have happened after Reagan left office, particularly with regard to the union workers who cast ballots for him, is that the majority of these so-called Reagan Democrats didn't actually become lifelong Republicans. Some went back to casting ballots for Democrats, but more just stopped voting entirely. The point, of course, is that the ongoing failures of the Democrats aren't just creating more Republicans, but are in fact discouraging more and more people from political participation entirely. And unfortunately, when people drop out of the political process, it's very, very difficult to re-engage them. So this is all to say that even if we can't say for sure what might happen in the midterms this year, at least one thing is clear at this point. The Democrats have an incredibly small number of chances left to get it right. All right, so we are shortly going to get to our interview with Ted Bettner of the Ohio River Valley Institute. Really looking forward to that. We're gonna be talking about West Virginia, as I said before. Um, but first we have a quick uh, message from our sponsor, Verso Books.
4: Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in January, you'll get these books. Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis by John Nichols. Britain's Empire, Resistance, Repression and Revolt by Richard Gott, a history of the foundation of the British Empire and the forgotten story of resistance to its formation. Culture and Politics, Class Writing Socialism by Raymond Williams, a new collection of essays from one of the founders of cultural studies, and Imperium, Structures and Affects of Political Bodies by Frederick Lordone, an exploration of political forms drawing on Spinoza's political philosophy. Become a member today at versobooks.com.
0: All right. So I am very excited now to introduce Ted Bettner. He is a senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute. He's formerly the executive director of the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, and I believe a native West Virginian?
5: Yeah, born, raised, and unbelievably stayed.
0: There you go. Uh, Ted, good to see you. Thanks for joining us.
5: Hey, thanks for having me, Generally Really appreciate being on. This is great.
0: So um, let's just dive right into it. We are going to get into the history of West Virginia, specifically through the history of steel manufacturing and coal. Uh, but I thought maybe it would make sense to kind of start with some sort of present day uh, issues and, and or controversies. So there's, of course, a lot of Democratic frustration right now with West Virginia Senator Joe For Manchin. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know. you. A surprise to you, I'm sure. You've, yeah. you've never heard anything about Never it. heard of anything. Right. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, what I wanted to kind of focus on with, you know, uh, I mean, Joe Manchin in particular is less Joe Manchin, or rather we can talk about him later, and I'm sure we will. Um, but I've been noticing that a lot of the Democratic frustration with Joe Manchin is very often expressed through uh, an animosity toward West Virginia itself or even West Virginians. I think the most famous example recently was the actress Bette Midler who like tweeted some like awful thing like, I hate Joe Manchin. He's so evil. Like he wants the U.S. to be just as poor and stupid and strung out as West Virginia. Um, And of course, she had to apologize. But uh, it reminded me very much of right after the 2016 election, when you also had a lot of high profile liberal commentators, um, you know, really upset about the election of Trump and kind of zeroing in weirdly on West Virginia and being like, I hope they lose their health insurance. Um, I remember seeing quite a few things like that. And it's interesting, right? Because when you think about, I mean, we're all frustrated with Joe Manchin, I think, but when we think about the Senate, we also have someone like Kirsten Sinema, who is, you know, similarly a, road, a roadblock to some of the dreams and hopes of the Democrats. But I just don't hear the same level of vitriol toward Arizona or like people in Arizona as I hear toward West Virginia. Um, so I guess by way of opening up the conversation, um, Ted, what is it about West Virginia that makes certain people lose their minds?
5: That's a, you know, I think West Virginia has been making people lose their minds for a very long time. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, Joe Manchin is a, you know, there's always this rotating villain that's sort of happening, too. If it's not Joe Manchin, it's Joe Lieberman. You know, we, there's sort of this mm. sort of frustration where we feel like, you know, I think you talked about in a previous show that Democrats are trying to lose on purpose. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, for, you know, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, you know, West Virginia just has a long history of uh, class struggle and unionism. You know, with the uh, rise of the United Mine Workers of America and, you know, in the early 20th century, West Virginia was a huge violent struggle for labor rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, a scene for child labor, some of the biggest strikes in the country, the most violent strikes happened in the state. And we saw that carry over with the teacher strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's always, too, in West Virginia, there's always been this, you know, knowledge that West Virginia wasn't always like this, that it mm-hmm. was a rural state. Uh, actually it was a lot more diverse than people think it was, <laughs> you know, especially during the cold boom times where people came together and fought for their rights. You know, it was the only time the national guards ever, you know, uh, you know, come after uh, union members mm-hmm. in a strike during the mine wars. And it was such a new deal state, you know, from the very beginning, you know, if you go, you know, from the, the, the great, great depression up until, Basically, the late 90s, early 2000s, West Virginia was a New Deal stronghold for the country. And I think people are always asking, like, sort of like, what's the matter with Kansas? What's the matter with West Virginia? What happened? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. and I
5: think West Virginia is just a good example of a state that's moved, that shifted dramatically, I would say mm-hmm. more than any other state, especially over the last 10 years. And that's why I think people are like, well, we know Arizona has always been a conservative for a very <laughs> long time. We know these other states, but West Virginia... You know, you have very low incomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very poor state, it always has been, but mostly through exploitation. And it is one of those states that, you know, it really has, it was colonized, you know, yeah. economically. It wasn't like a woke thing like it is today. It actually was. Uh, right. You know, this is, uh, this is what really happened here. We didn't have much control. Large companies controlled the resources and, dom- and pillared the land, took all of the timber, the, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, coal and the oil and gas from the state. And I think people almost expect more from West Virginia. That's yeah,
0: awesome. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think that there's definitely an element of that. And then, again, something that you just touched on is that West Virginia is a very poor state. And I think that, you know, for a lot of liberals, I guess, makes it an easy target. So um, ex- expand on that a little bit. How did West Virginia get so poor? Because you 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 have gotten into it a little bit. But uh-huh. I, I just want to, you know, sort of um, drive home that I, I just really don't think that West Virginia is poor because, you know, the people of West Virginia have a a bad work ethic or like a culture of poverty or something. Uh, So, so what's going on in West Virginia? What made it so poor?
5: I mean, I think objectively it was very true. The class lines before the new deal were, it was objectively, you know, poor and exploited. And and this culture of poverty actually didn't happen until, you know, the 1960s, actually Michael Harrington's book, The Other America, Mm -hmm. and several books uh, that followed too, that started, you know, and the neoconservatives started blaming this culture of poverty for all of the reasons When we all know that, you know, when you look at the state of West Virginia, especially through a political economic lens, you understand that it's poor because of the outside interests uh, that have dominated the state, you know, uh, and that has played out. But in that same time that it's been poor and it's struggled throughout all this period, you know, West Virginia has a fighting spirit of fighting for the rights of fighting for an eight hour workday against child labor. The UMWA was one of the first unions that was, you know, that came across around racial lines that was mm-hmm. very diverse in the very beginning. Uh, you know, and used to have saying when people came out of the coal mine, everybody was black, you know, and people, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a utopia or anything, but people got along to a much greater extent. And for a lot of people, especially, uh, uh, black sharecroppers that were coming from Alabama, they came to West Virginia, they could actually make much better wages and be more integrated within the union movement. Uh, you know, and there's some problems with that too. Later on, uh, you know, but, you know, through those New Deal coalitions and right up until the 90s, you know, West Virginia was a very blue state. I mean, look, let's think about it. I mean, West yeah. Virginia voted, we were one of five states, I think, that voted for Carter in 1980. we were <laughs> one of, we were the only Southern state to vi- vote for Michael Dukakis <laughs> in 1988. Uh, and then we voted for Clinton twice and the state started shifting, you know. And I think the big reason, as you touched on, was a deindustrialization. West Virginia <laughs> has a very sort of, low formally educated population. The share of uh, people with college degrees is one of the lowest in the country. It always has been. Uh, But we've, you know, to keep a rural place progressive and to keep it like like that, you have to have unions. Yeah. You know, if you don't have, you know, so much of blue America today is blue because it has a high, it's highly educated, right? Mm -hmm. That's the core. Go find places that are rural somewhat homogenous, maybe, and that are, you know, that are really left wing, you know, those are mostly union places, union strongholds. And even up until like, you know, John Kerry's election, all of the Coalfield counties, and most of all of them in West Virginia, all voted for John Kerry, you know, the biggest coal producing county in West Virginia, Boone County voted for Barack Obama. Uh, you know, and the shift just kept happening because National Democrats just became out of touch with working class people. And West Virginia is a prime example of that, And uh, the 90s were a great example with NAFTA. You know, it just decimated, uh, you know, the manufacturing industry in the state. We had a huge steel industry. Weirton Steel was our biggest employer in West Virginia. They had over 14,000 workers. And they made more money. The typical worker made more money in the late 70s at Weirton Steel than they would today at Walmart. So just Mm -hmm. to give you an idea of that huge shift uh, and the Democrats became unaligned. And I think, you know, along with uh, so-called free trade agreements and these things, they began to abandon workers and began to embrace more of the neoliberalism of the age. Uh, mm-hmm. But the big thing that really happened, I mean, the big fracture in West Virginia politics is climate change, right? Yeah. So the late nineties Kyoto protocol, you know, was being talked about uh, and mountaintop removal became a big sort of flash point in West Virginia, uh, it became a, a fission between environmentalists and progressives and the labor movement. And The fact of the matter is, in Western, you can't win without labor. Uh, yeah. And people try and try and try. And I think it's great, <laughs> but it's very, very difficult. They have always been the foundation of the state's progressive politics. And that came to a head in the late 90s because it really mm-hmm. is. It's a, it's, a, it's a Greek tragedy because you look at it, you have climate change. It's a huge issue we need to deal with. But it's kind of a direct attack on coal because, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, nobody liked the coal industry. We hated them. And the coal industry knew that. I mean, there was a poll actually out in 2001 that showed around 40% of people like the coal industry in West Virginia. And the coal industry was like, we got to change that. And -hmm. today, it's over 75% support the coal. I mean, it's a huge shift to go from loving the UMWA, being a a miner first and caring about the minerals second to a state that cares more about the industry, because Mm -hmm. the unions have also been decimated uh, by people like Don Blankenship that we know
0: Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, I I want to pause on this this kind of like push and pull that you're talking about uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans, and uh, especially through the kind of interesting history of coal and deindustrialization in West Virginia. Because today, of course, there's no doubt that West Virginia is like Donald Trump country, right? Like West yeah. Virginia, uh, Donald Trump won West Virginia by I uh, you know a landslide, right, in both 2016 and 2020. However, I also want to point out, I, uh, and and people might remember. Bernie Sanders in the 2016 Democratic primary won every single county in West Virginia. I think that's something like over 50 counties, right?
5: Yeah, he won every 55 counties in West Virginia.
0: 55 counties. I can't think of another state where that happened, except probably, I mean, obviously in Vermont, Bernie Sanders home state. So so I want to ask you about that. Um, You know, given what you know about West Virginia, being a West Virginian yourself, studying the history of you know, manufacturing and coal in the state, and of course, working at uh, working where you do, um, was Bernie Sanders' win in the 2016 primary some kind of weird fluke, or is there a way that Bernie-style politics could succeed and take hold in West Virginia today?
5: That's a really great question. I mean, I was at a, I mean first thing I recognized in 2016, I was at a Bernie rally in Huntington, West Virginia, and there were thousands of people there and the best thing about it jen is i looked around i didn't know a person there
0: (laughs) right i was like
5: whoa like if you can bring out people now because west virginia is a small place everybody it's like kevin bacon you know a couple degrees you know everybody uh so i was like this is an interesting phenomenon and we have to recognize too like you know if you go back to the 80s and 90s two-thirds of voters in west virginia were democrats Mm -hmm. okay now it's like a third all right and republicans have gone up like five seven percent yeah. And what we've seen is about 28%, 25% of West Virginians are registered, no party, independent. Yep. Uh, so for the most part, what you're seeing is people that just want to blow up the system. You know, mm-hmm. And they're like, for 40 years in West Virginia, we voted Democrat, we did this, we voted for Obama maybe, we voted for John Kerry, we voted for Clinton, and nothing's getting better. Our material yeah. lives have not changed a bit. In fact, they're getting worse, no matter who we vote for. And for most people who voted for Trump, like it wasn't some like... They're not news junkies. They're not watching Fox News every day or CNN or right. listening to Jacobin. You know, they're just, you know, they're just trying to figure out their lives and see how things have changed. I mean, the new yeah. deal and unions really changed it. They were a bastion of political education for people in rural areas. Uh, you know, one story I'll tell you too, just really quick is that I'll never forget a friend of mine who's an author. Told a story, you know, back in the 80s, she was in McDowell County, West Virginia, which is a southern county, uh, which was one of the biggest coal producing counties in the state, probably the biggest coal producing county in the in the country, east of the Mississippi. Uh, very racially diverse county. Uh, you know, she was down there in the 80s at a bar uh, and talking to a coal miner, and the, this bar, this coal miner kept talking to her, like, "Do you know this guy named Nelson Mandela? Have you ever heard of him?" And she was like, "Wow, you know, this is the 80s." You know, she's yeah. like, "Wow, how did you know about Nelson Mandela?" Well, he like lifted from his back pocket, pocket, a UMWA newsletter and say, well, I've been reading about, you know, what's been going on in South Africa and I don't like it. I've been reading about it in this newsletter from the UMWA. I mean, just to show you how different the politics were and how people were connected to the outside world through that union education, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, if you go back to the late seventies, I mean, Cecil Roberts, who's the UMWA president right now, they were talking about nationalizing the industry. Right. the energy and it's wild right yeah, to think yeah, about yeah. <laughs> like how far are we away from that yeah
0: yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, think- well okay yeah. so that's really interesting yeah. and i want to pause on that because you know there is a stereotype i again among a lot of liberals who don't live Absolutely. in west virginia west virginia that these coal unions are like reactionary or they're like the regressive unions um but actually you know the united mind workers of america have pushed joe manchin not just to support build back better uh but also to support the pro act that was a few months ago so i, I i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we should understand the relationship between these these unions and Joe Manchin and, and talk a little bit about what these unions still have the leverage to do.
5: Yeah, I mean, I still think they culturally have more leverage. They have a lot of, there's still, there's a lot of retirees too. And that's one reason West Virginia really switched is all the sort of FDR, you know, retirees, you know, passed away eventually and their kids did, they either left West Virginia or stayed and, you know, didn't vote the same way. Uh, but the UMWA still has a lot of cultural power, even though they don't have the membership that they do. And, you know, they've had to deal, you know, like I think uh, Karl Marx talked about like subjective circumstances and an objective. <laughs> you have to deal with that objective reality you're in too and what you're going to do. Uh, and they, you know, it, it would definitely be poetic if they were able to push Manchin to vote for a bill back better, mm-hmm. which cl- includes all these climate provisions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but most. You know, coal miners are just great people, hardworking mm-hmm. people and people from West Virginia feel like, you know, we haven't done a lot, but we know how to mine coal and we know how to do it right. And we know yeah. and we take pride in that and you start messing with that. You're going to be you're going to have problems. And that's the problem that we've had. And that's yeah. opened the door for someone like Manchin to rise. And, you know, over the last 20 years, that's been the party of Manchin in West Virginia. Yeah. Nobody would doubt that. Uh and someone like Bernie coming in, I think the thing, I mean, I mean, there's no doubt to my mind that Bernie, you know, that Manchin's more threatened by Bernie than Mitch McConnell, you know, because <laughs> mm-hmm. he does have rapport. He's willing to go into McDowell. He did go into McDowell County, in West Virginia, and talk to people. He's mm-hmm. willing to talk to anybody. And that's something Barack Obama refused to do in West Virginia and never yeah. only came here when Byrd died and a couple other times. He refused to engage with people. And we have a huge, a huge legacy of JFK and other presidents coming here to talk to people because you know they're in hard to reach areas. But you know, I mean I think it would be f- fairly interesting to see if they are able to push them because I think, you know, I think they have done a, the MWA is particularly and Cecil Roberts have done a great job of, you know, trying to leverage the power that they do have right. uh, on Senator Manchin. Right. And I think like back to you know Hillary Clinton, I think the one thing <laughs> I wanted to bring up, we remember when she came here and called people deplorables. You know, Manchin was with her and that was yeah, just like a yeah. huge blow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to that. I remember thinking that night how horrible and, you know, uh, and the fact of the matter is most people who voted for Trump are not somebody that is completely ideological and just like news junkies. These are just everyday. Most of them are great people.
0: Right. And right. you
5: can't just throw them by the wayside, call them fascists with right. so many liberals. do. It's like, what are you doing? Right, like, right. And do they not know you can't win with that? Like, you, right. that's not a winning formula. Right, right, that's, right. I mean, some of the things with identity politics, too, it's like, that's not a winning formula. You right. can't win. Yeah. Like, good luck, but you can't win with that kind of uh, strategy.
0: Yeah. You know, that's that's interesting. That reminds me of when the um, 2018 teacher strikes were going on. There was obviously, like, a huge outpouring of support across the country. But I remember there were still some commentators who were like, well, I think some of these teachers may have voted for Trump. And it was like, oh, my God. But I'd anyway. i like, great. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I know. I know. It's like, then then we won. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You
5: you know, I I was joking around at one point. I said, you know, you know, we West Virginia needs leftists that don't hate 75 percent of West Virginians. Because it's like you can't win with that. and You have to meet people where they are. And most people are good people. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. where I'm coming from. And you get to talk to them and you go hang out at a a union, uh, uh, you know, UMWA local and talk to people, man, they'll have you in tears. I mean, like you'll talk about the history and what they, they have a nice community of people that are, uh, great. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they've done something all their life. They built a camaraderie and a family. Uh, and, you know, the role of women too, in West Virginia just has been huge as part of the labor movement. Mother Jones, we can go to the future here too, but, you know, it's been just, it's just very difficult to see people really, crap on West Virginia in that yeah. sense because I think it's a it's it belies a real misunderstanding and it's not productive. Yeah. You're not yeah. going to get anywhere uh name calling.
0: So, to follow up on that, just within the state itself, do you feel like the teacher strikes uh in 2018 uh changed or transformed the political culture of West Virginia in any way?
5: Ooh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think actually I think that, you know, there's some great it was it was one of the best things I've ever witnessed was yeah. the teacher strikes in West Virginia. I was, went, took my kid there every day uh, when the schools were closed, uh, but it actually had more of an effect around the country than it did in West Virginia in terms of mm. policy changes. Mm-hmm. You know, and it came back, Jen, to that fundamental question that the UMWA has come back to, and. Mostly all of their strikes going back to the New Deal, healthcare, right? I mean, that was the reason for the part of the reason for the strike was access to healthcare. We're still fighting these same issues, you know, and not getting having Medicare for all or having a universal health system to take Mm -hmm. this thing off the table, uh, you know, so people can fight for other things, you know, is a huge issue. But I think in terms of its lasting effect, I mean, if you know, you know, not to quote Bill Parcells, you know, the (laughs) Giants football coach, you're only as good as your record. But if you look at like what's happened at the legislature, I mean, they've repealed that we have right to work now. They repealed prevailing wage, paycheck protection passed, and they've passed a whole slew of, you know, anti-worker laws, independent contracting. We have the widest independent contracting laws in the country. Uh, You know, it's it's been terrible in that regard. Uh, But there are some. Interesting things that are happening too. Republicans in the House in the West Virginia House have formed a labor caucus. Like, how mm-hmm. often do you see Republicans form a labor caucus? Right. You know, so I mean, that's there. I've always said that people in West Virginia, if it was a canoe, they're sort of canoeing to the right on social issues, and they're canoeing to the left on economic issues. Right. And that's, and that's where actually the movable people in this country they exist in that upper left quadrant. Yep. Uh, where yep. people are progress, you know, to the left on economic issues. Uh, but when it comes to sort of identitarian issues, they're not for that. You know, they're right. much more so. And, that, and that's across racial lines. Mm-hmm. Yep. When you get out of the professional management class and you talk to everyday people, working class people, not people like me who have, who do their work, you know, in front of a computer, uh, you get a whole different perspective. You know, people, you know, are really want to come together and build a basis of solidarity mm-hmm. and they don't want to be torn apart by cultural issues that are, right. Dividing people. Uh, And I think I don't understand from outside looking in why people think that's a good idea to feel recognized in a sense on some of these issues and realizing uh, that it's just the math isn't there to win like that. Right. You you have to talk. And that's why unions to me are the best form of uh, reducing racism. There absolutely is. is forming a union because it brings people together over something. That they have a shared interest in, and when right. people talk and get to know each other, guess what, Jen? Yeah, they they begin to hang out more and go, right. you know, do things. You know, I mean, <laughs> and that's the breakdown of social capital just in this country in West Virginia, and the distrust of institutions is mm-hmm. massive too. And but you know, unions used to bring people together. You know, that was something you did. It's something you uh, got together at picnics,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, things
5: like that. And so if if there's a like, I went to my last union thing I went to. I remember there was a gun raffle you know they had a gun raffle like i thought it was cool i signed up yeah yeah i hunt i love to hunt
0: i i I don't know know if you know this ted but i'm from idaho so i'm i'm well i'm i'm well acquainted with the gun raffle
5: (laughs) yeah so i mean like but some people will be like oh my god there's a gun raffle how dare you i'm like no this is great
0: right yeah you know (laughs) know,
5: trying to understand people and see where they are right right it's a it's a brave thing these days i think just to listen to both sides a little bit and talk yeah. to people and not judge them. Cause people, one thing I've learned in life is people are multi-dimensional. Yeah. You know, they might be for marijuana legalization. They might not be pro choice. Right, they might exactly. be for their labor and want to fight right to work, but they don't, they have some problems with, you know, um, uh,
0: Some climate thing or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's just like
5: you have to like you know you have to figure out the things that we can come together on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't now I'm starting to like mansion a little bit, but you do (laughs) have to. I don't want to get that part, but it's really the economic issues are the Mm -hmm. and that's what divides the other side. If you Mm -hmm. bring out the issues that divide their caucus, which Mm -hmm. you think we would do if we were smart, I mean, that's what they do. They pick issues like we'll know this will divide them. Right. But for a lot of people in West Virginia, if the Democrats aren't delivering on the material goods, Republicans are delivering for some of these people. On the social goods, whether it's like banning critical race theory or whatever (laughs) it is, they feel like they're getting something they are banning abortion in West Virginia, Mm -hmm. 15 weeks, Mm -hmm. they're allowing the most the, you know, allowing anybody to carry a concealed weapon, right? They feel like they're getting something. I mean, right, exactly. And what are the Democrats doing? Like, we're gonna barely do this and this. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. But like, you know, it's, it's a national problem. And I think, West Virginia working class people, I mean, the Democrats have just, they left the party. I mean, this is all documented, right, in the 80s by Joe Rogers and other folks. I mean, this was, they left, they became the party of me, of the professional management class. And I don't want them to be the party of me. I want to be the party of the working class.
0: Right. So I think my last question for you is kind of pulling these threads together and um, thinking through like how some of these like gaps can can start to shrink. Right. So you work for the Ohio River Valley Institute, uh, which, among other things, uh, focuses on energy policy. So I want to ask you, you know, um, just as kind of a closing question, how does given given all of the, you know, um, uh, controversies and, and push and pull around coal that you just outlined, how can West Virginia start to, uh, begin a just transition or, or how can West Virginia create not just green jobs, but good jobs in the state?
5: Yeah, that's very hard. I mean, one of the first things I would say, don't, don't say just transition because (laughs) it's, it kind of sounds like just do it Nike, like, Oh, just transition. Like, yeah, sure. That'll be easy. And if you talk to union members like we've never seen a just transition, we have no idea what you're talking about. Right. This is a nonprofit sector derived thing. It's a nonprofit industrial, you know, uh, I mean, it's a little different in Europe. But, you know, I think the key to do that uh, is to think of ultimate things. You know, there is there's kind of a push to, you know, West Virginia has a ban on nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of question marks around nuclear power, but it could serve as a good source of really good paying jobs. And if you know some of these plants get built at, if they repower former coal plants with nuclear power, some of them, these are jobs that can last 50, 60, 70 years. Like what companies can say that they do that? And that's why people in Western Europe love coal jobs, because yeah, especially at coal plants. I mean, like you put a coal plant somewhere, it's gonna survive for 50 or 60 years. That's a lot of stability. Uh, yeah. you know, so I mean I think they look at it sort of like that, but I think I think the one thing that Bernie did that was really good, he was leveling with people and saying, mm-hmm. he didn't try to bullshit anybody. Yeah. Don't bullshit. People can smell it a mile away. Yeah. You know, and don't try to sneak anything past and just say, you know, we, that's why it's so disappointing to watch mansion because I mean, we all joked around at the beginning, like he, he could ask for 60 billion, hundred billion for West Virginia. Right. And we could have one of the best national parks in the state. We could have huge water infrastructure, the best broadband, we could be making huge inroads to really transition. And I think when I say, I, when I think about transition, I think, you know, it has to include people in rural areas, you know, and it has yeah. to include infrastructure and things like that. And I, and I think that's a really important part. I mean, West Virginia, there is coal at the like metallurgical coal that's used for making steel. And that's probably going to be around for a while. Uh, but the steam coal, everybody knows that it's going out the door. Uh, But there's just, it's a huge problem because renewable energy just doesn't pay nearly like uh, these industries paid. Uh, And they're just very different. You know, people don't come together. to Going down in a coal shaft (laughs) and a coal mine is very different than installing, you know, wind energy or Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of coming together. It's a very hard thing uh, to figure out. Uh, But I think the first thing is the level of people. Yeah. And to... Put investments in areas all over the place like energy efficiency, but just solid infrastructure, you know, billions of dollars and doing that uh, could really go a long way, I think, in you know, in that terms of that transition, but it's, it's the $64 million question,
0: Jen. (laughs) Right, right. All right. Well, Ted, you have been very generous with your time. Really enjoyed this talk. Um, I guess we will see if the UMWA <laughs> is able to move Mansion at all in the coming weeks. Um, thank you so much. It was great to see you.
5: Hey, too, Jen. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: All right, Uh, again, really enjoyed that talk. Um, Ted Bentner, I forgot to outro him, but he is a senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute. Definitely check out their work. They uh, do a lot of uh, policy work in West Virginia and keep an eye on them. All right, I think uh, that is it for tonight's show. I just want to remind everybody that Young Kale will be hosting an extra live stream this Friday for members uh, on this channel. That's gonna be at 5 p.m. Eastern. As always, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Please hit like and subscribe before you go. I remember this time. And I'll see you next week.